Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm Miriam Anzevin, and I'm joined on this episode by my co-host, Ashley Jacobs. Hey, Miriam. I am so excited to welcome our guest today, Paula Scheuer, a.k.a. the Kosher Baker, a.k.a. the Queen of Modern Comfort Food. Paula is the author of The Healthy Jewish Kitchen, The Holiday Kosher Baker, The Kosher Baker, The New Passover Menu, and now The Instant Pot Kosher Cookbook. Paula has a French pastry degree from Paris and does cooking events all over the world. She is a freelance writer, cookbook editor, and influencer. Paula competed on Food Network's Sweet Genius and has appeared on TV over 45 times. We are thrilled to talk with Paula about her new cookbook, how the ritual of cooking can sustain and soothe us during the pandemic, and the enduring healing power of baking challah and also babka. Paula, thank you so much for joining us today on the Vibe of the Tribe podcast. Great to be here with you. You have had such an incredible career as a baker and chef with travel, video, shows, TV appearances, articles, and of course, your super, super popular cookbooks and classes. Not only are you known as the kosher baker, but you are the, quote, queen of modern comfort food, which I love that quote. However, you actually started out as an attorney. What first captivated you about cooking, and how has your culinary journey evolved? So I have loved to cook and bake since my easy bake oven when I was five years old. But of course, growing up like in the 70s in Long Island in New York, just never imagined that this was an actual career. So my own personal food story goes back to my grandmother's kitchen in Brooklyn when I would watch her measure cake ingredients with her hands. And I went to college to become a doctor, actually, and ended up, as you mentioned, like in law school after a chemistry accident. And I was in Boston for college at Brandeis University. And I came down to DC for law school and practiced law here for four years before my husband's work sent us to Geneva, Switzerland. And I had a legal job there as well until I left after my daughter Emily was born and decided to go to cooking school in Paris, like just for fun, not even looking for a new career, like just thought I would learn how to bake better. But then Back in Geneva, people wanted me to bake for them, and people in the Jewish organizations asked me to teach cooking classes for them. So I ended up with this whole new business and came back to the U.S., taught cooking classes in my home kitchen, edited cookbooks, and then eventually got the kosher baker out in the world in 2010 after every single publisher said no and told me there was no market for kosher baking books. So I I started with baking books, but then moved into savory recipes because obviously I could not feed my family babka for dinner every night. Debatable. (laughs) Right, I know, debatable. And because I was doing so many dessert recipes, I had to balance that out with healthier food. So like I've been moving in the healthier direction. So that's been kind of like my journey. The Instant Pot Kosher Cookbook is your fifth cookbook, correct? What inspired you 
to have this be the focus of the book. I read on your blog, I was very interested about this. It does seem like a really great tool that makes it easier for observant Jews to actually be able to eat hot food on Shabbat because there is no outright cooking. You can't use a microwave or stove or oven if you're observant. It's just not permitted. In what ways is the Instant Pot revolutionary in cooking? So I resisted the Instant Pot craze for so long because I I have a kosher kitchen with milk, meat, Passover. There's no place for more appliances. But fans kept hounding me for Instant Pot recipes. So I got one. And my first recipe was split pea soup, a classic kind of Jewish deli soup. And after 20 minutes, the split peas like melted into the liquid. Then I made like flanken short ribs and the meat like fell off the bone. And I was just like literally hooked after using it three times. And, you know, what I've discovered that it's so perfect for like the staples of our cuisine, which is like soups and stews. And somebody told me about the Kosher Instant Pot Facebook group. So I went to check it out to look for a source for some recipes and inspiration. What I found was 8,700 members. And I thought, oh my God, that's like crazy. So I started reading through the feed and discovered pretty quickly that most of the members were frustrated that they had to keep adapting recipes that were non-kosher that people posted into kosher recipes. And after using the Instant Pot maybe three times, I decided to write this group a cookbook. And this kosher Instant Pot Facebook group now has 14,600 members. And my big joke is sometimes you have to fake it until you make it. And I went from like zero to becoming an expert. So anybody can do that as well. And it's so great for Israeli recipes, international recipes. And on what I do for Shabbat, for example, I make my cholent or chicken soup, fully cook it onto the pressure cook setting. And then I switch it to the slow cook setting. And then it just stays warm through dinner. And you just have to change the lid so you don't have any beeping when you open it up on Shabbat. You just substitute a glass lid that the Instant Pot brand's company makes or any glass lid that's from your other top. You just stick it on your top of your Instant Pot and then you have your warm food on Shabbat. It's so interesting. There's this already built-in audience of people who you discovered and were clearly looking for this. Oh, they are obsessive. Like, the worst thing anyone can post is, why would I bother making blah, blah, blah in the Instant Pot? And everybody just pounces on them like, because you can't. So my family has an Instant Pot. My mom is obsessed. She loves it. It's so cool. I remember one time my best friend and I made chili, like sweet potato black bean chili Mm -hmm. in less than 10 minutes. Everything cooked through. It was ridiculous. So I'm just wondering, like, what's your favorite recipe from your new book? Well, obviously I have so many and I just can't wait to just get it in my hand so I can start using, you know, I use it all the time. I use my Instapot at least once, I use it once if not twice a day. Spinach pesto brisket is one of my favorites. I have another one I love. It's my spaghetti with flanken bolognese. So I make a bolognese sauce out of ground beef and chopped up flanken short rib beef. And then I put this, I wet the spaghetti, put the spaghetti in the pot with water and sauce. So the sauce cooks at the bottom, the spaghetti cooks. And then when it's done, you mix it together. No two pots, no colander, done. And it's so good. And then my, I would say my favorite, one of my favorite recipes is actually the uh, beet and quinoa salad inspired by a a dish I had on a food tour in Haifa, Israel about two years ago. All the food in this place was from the country of Georgia. And 
What's so great is that you put quinoa, water, and beets cut up into quarter inch cubes in the Instapot at the same time. And you set the cooking time for zero minutes. So in the time it takes for the device to come to pressure and then kind of release quietly, you know, release naturally for 10 minutes, it's completely cooked. And then I mix in like walnuts and, and celery and lemon juice and olive oil. And I have this like wonderful dish, which could be a main course because it's got, you know, the quinoa in it. It could be a side dish. It could be an appetizer and it's bright pink. So it's really pretty. Wow. I got to buy one of these. Is this raw beets? Raw beets cut into little tiny cubes. Do you know how long it takes to roast beets in the oven? It takes like 45 minutes. That's insane. I cooked a whole beet in my Instapot yesterday. And usually it takes me about 10 minutes, but it took me about 18 yesterday because it was a big beet. I'm going to puree it and put it into hamantaschen dough today. Oh my Wait. God. So like pink hamantaschen? I want to create Valentine's Day hamantaschen. So basically pink hamantaschen, <gasps> I'm filling it with ruby chocolate. So that's one. Of, that's today's project. I love this idea. It's oh some my crazy Mishigasa came up with. We'll see how it comes out, but I'm excited about it That's anyway. That's brilliant. Oh my goodness. I love that. And I also have a lot of desserts in the rest in the book as well that I love. Cheesecake in my dairy one is so creamy, flan, podocram. Anything you would have cooked in a water bath in the oven, you can do in the Instapot really successfully. We are currently existing in a moment in time where we are all so stressed out and experiencing so many challenges to our emotional and mental and physical health. There's been something about rituals of self-care that have been so important as this impossibly difficult time just grinds on interminably. How can the act of cooking sustain us and soothe us and connect us to each other even when we are not physically in the same place. One of the things I've joked about is that these days we all feel like a carrot thrown into an instant pot on the saute setting. You know, you get that big flash of shock of the heat, but then you see people around you so you're not alone and you relax into that. But then more ingredients come in, the device is shut and the pressure builds up, but eventually you're down to the warm setting. And finally, the top is open and you're free. So at its worst, you know, we're all being fully pressure cooked. And at its best, we're on the warm setting, like adjusting to the reality of what we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. I feel that for me, cooking is one of those activities that when I am doing it, I don't think about anything else. I am fully, singularly focused on the task at hand. And to me, that's the perfect escape from daily life because you end up with something delicious that will nourish you. And and I don't mean like eating ice cream nourish you, but like really good, hearty kind of food nourishing. And that really does help relieve the stress for me. And the Instant Pot is so perfect for classic comfort food, the kinds of foods that we like to share. So like I've been doing so many Zoom cooking classes, so I end up with so much food, a lot of them are Instant Pot classes, and I've been packaging up soup to give to people. So I feel like use this device to create like the perfect food to share with family and friends. There have been, shall we say, some unique challenges around preparing for and celebrating Jewish holidays during the pandemic. 
last year we said this year on Zoom, next year in person. Clearly that's not happening again, but hopefully most people know by now how to use Zoom. So that's definitely an improvement. What were some of the major takeaways for you for how we as Jews can still make the holidays we usually spend at home with our families special, meaningful, delicious, and less sad? I hear you. Every time we tick off another Jewish holiday, we're thinking, okay, but the next one's going to be different. So this is what I would suggest. Just like in normal times, when you would have like old people and young people at your table, I suggest that you should have old recipes and young recipes at your table. And what I mean by that is like include a recipe, whether it's from a mother, a grandmother, your aunt's kitchen, a recipe that you, and it's part of your own personal food story. Could be something you cooked for your friends in college, your first, what you fed your children during a transition in your life. What it could be any, it could be something you ate on a tr- on a trip somewhere. We don't get to travel, right? So. Take one of those recipes that are part of your story and bring that to the table. Share with whoever is in your household that story or on Zoom. And also like really think through that experience that you had and why it's so meaningful to you. And then add a new recipe from one of my five cookbooks. I have a a new Passover menu cookbook with wonderful recipes there. Take something new that you've never made before. Create a new food tradition. And that way you're combining your past and your future kind of in the present. And I think that's a a way to uplift your holiday experience. Let's talk about bread. There have been so many bread baking frenzies during the pandemic. We've had the banana bread phase, the sourdough phase, the pancake cereal phase, the babka phase, and I'm not sure what is the next bread phase, but it could really be anything. You said online in one of your Instagram posts, I think, that you really loved seeing all the Instagram posts where people share the challahs that they've made, the challah that they've made, and that it warms your heart. And I think there's something really beautiful about that. What is it about baking bread? And for the Jewish community, of course, baking challah in particular, that is so deeply compelling and comforting. So challah making truly connects us. And social media, as you said, is so full of these, like so many viral trends that are like really popular one week and then something else replaces it the next week. But everybody has been posting about challah. And even if like I take my challah recipe, which is on my website, thekosherbaker.com, I've turned it into focaccia, I've shaped it in all kinds of fun ways. I've baked it like sourdough, like on a stone in the oven. I've had a lot of fun with it too. But doesn't matter what recipe, what flavor, what shape, we're all essentially making the same challah bread. And we're all saying the same prayer when we eat it at the Shabbat table. So there's something really spiritual about that experience. We say a prayer, which is hard gratitude and kind of acknowledging our blessings which is something Shabbat is all about, right? We work all week and on Shabbat, we get to stop and consider what we've created that week and really fully appreciate it. So the beauty of challah is that we're all making the same thing and that connects all of us. Now, bread making like at its core is so basic and people have survived on it for centuries. Making bread, I really see making any kind of bread in challah bread, it's like magic, right? You take the most simple, ingredients that exist. We're talking like 
flour and water, maybe eggs, salt, a little bit of sugar or honey, like basic, basic ingredients. And then we combine them into a dough that has to sit for a while. And then voila, it rises in the bowl, right? If it's done right, it rises in the bowl and it rises again in the oven. And I really feel that that act of watching bread rise is like the purest symbol of hope that change is possible. Like we watch these things turn into something beautiful. And I think it's a message that we all need to fully cling to right now that where whatever's happening in your life right now, whatever you're doing, all you have to do is take one little step forward to something different, to just try something new, try a new approach or a new attitude, and that will help you cope with everything we're dealing with right now. I am curious, what do you, from your professional standpoint, predict the next baking phase obsession will be? Is it pumpernickel, pretzels, donuts, cinnamon rolls? It's hard to say. You know, you mentioned babka before, which is one of my specialties. So babka isn't going away anytime soon. Babka is like, who could argue with babka? It's like bread and chocolate together, which is really remarkable. My newest obsession is ruby chocolate, which um, you can get on Amazon. It's kosher dairy. So I use it in dairy recipes. And it's like a processing of another part of the cocoa bean that they get this beautiful pink color. So I'm starting, I've been baking with it. And I think other people will discover it too. It's hard to say. This week, it was like the feta and tomato pasta sauce. But who knows what'll be the thing? You never know. You never know. Like I kept thinking my challah focaccia was going to take off. It was probably my most popular posting on Instagram of the year on at Kosher Baker. I think I had like almost 700 likes. People just love that. And it's delicious. The challah at the bottom absorbs the olive oil. So you have the acidity of the olive oil with the sweetness of the dough. It is, and you can use any challah recipe not just mine, and just braid long strips of challah and put it in an oiled baking pan. And it's just magic. Ashley and I entered the pandemic with diametrically opposed approaches to food and cooking. I was subsisting pretty much entirely on lean cuisine and children's gummy vitamins. And she is an excellent cook and would bake stuff and bring it into work and then I would (laughs) eat it there. But for both of us, a lot of things changed over the past year. Like they changed for everybody. Originally, when I was a kid, I learned to cook from my father who himself was taught by his Italian grandfather. But for a really long time after he passed away, I just didn't cook. I stopped cooking and I pretended for years that I didn't even know how to boil water as a kind of comedic bit. Ashley can actually confirm this. Yeah, it's true. Well, did not think I could boil water. So what changed for me is here we are in this pandemic year, and my uncle and I are living with and taking care of my 89-year-old grandmother. And during quarantine, I realized I've had to pull on all my skills and creative thinking and any ability I have to get through this. And it dawned on me, now is not the time for any of us to shortchange our abilities or skills. So I started cooking again for the three of us and tailoring the food to meet our respective health needs. And the act of cooking has given me this nostalgic connection with my father, especially when I'm making his recipes. And at the same time, I'm feeding the family I have with me right now. It's been a lovely rediscovery or re-entry into cooking. What advice might you have for somebody like me who did not cook for a really long time, might be very rusty, 
but they're really inspired to do more in terms of cooking and baking. Well, I love your story about connecting to your father. My mother only ate chocolate desserts. And whenever I eat a bite of chocolate with like a ganache on top, I'm always going to think of my mother because she used to hide a chocolate fudge Entenmann's cake in her closet in her bedroom. That was her own personal stash. And we had one in the kitchen as well. <laughs> so what I would tell you about learning and, and improving on your cooking skills is, first of all, be kind to yourself. No one is born a Michelin chef, just like no one's born a concert violinist. It's all about practice. Keep trying new recipes and don't be afraid to make mistakes. When I was writing my first two cookbooks, The Holiday Kosher Maker and The Kosher Maker, we would have the bake and dump on occasion where I'd make something, we would take a bite, and I'd be thinking how I could repurpose it. And my husband's like, nope, dumped it in the garbage. Nothing chocolate ever got dumped, I will say that. And so you shouldn't be afraid to like challenge yourself with something new. And like, the Instant Pot is like a fun new device to get to know. And just we have the time to like keep making things over and over. And one of the things we did in our house when all my four kids were here, I have four kids between uh, 21 and 26. We would do themed brunches every Sunday. And I use the hashtag brunch like a shoyer. And we traveled the world from our kitchen table. We did Eastern European, Greek, Swiss, Israeli, Southern American, Cuban food, British high tea. And it was really fun for me, somebody who creates recipes, to use other people's recipes for a change. And I learned new skills. I made things that I had never made before. So just don't be afraid to try anything new and just commit to it. Thank you. I found myself the other day actually looking forward to making chicken soup. Like I was like, oh, I'm very the excited to do this. The and Instant I was Pot like, makes the best chicken soup because all the f- flavor, I'm, it cooks for 45 minutes and then I let it sit for hours to just cool. And then the, the color and the flavor is extraordinary. This is why I got to get it. I got to do it. I love what you said, Paula, about don't be afraid to try new things and make mistakes because In the kitchen, I don't really think that there are mistakes. They're all learning experiences. They're all experiments. And that's how you keep going along and trying new things. So as I like to say, I come from a long line of distinguished culinarians. Food has always been a big part of my life. And I've been cooking and baking since I could hold a spoon. (laughs) My maternal grandparents were born in Egypt. So there's a lot of connection and uniqueness and nostalgia there. My paternal grandparents were of Eastern European descent, and most stories about them revolve around my grandma's cooking and baking. She died when I was 12, and her original recipes are how I've gotten to know her more. My family and I cook when we're all together, but thanks to the pandemic, that's been well over a year. We are all such food nerds, though. I've taken recreational classes at a culinary school. I embarrassingly have over 50 cookbooks. Um, And I promise that's not embarrassing. That makes you cool. Yeah, it's a library, as you told me. But I promised myself that I would make one new recipe from each of my cookbooks this year because I don't know them. And I needed something exciting and something to look forward to and something that was a challenge for me. And I even created a Instagram account for my culinary exploits and to hold me accountable for my cookbook challenge. So just like you had a hashtag, brunch like a shoyer, which I think is incredible. I have hashtag cook the books 2021. So my question for you is, 
For those of us who are more learned or more comfortable in the kitchen, what advice do you have for us to further develop our skills? How can we learn new techniques? So I will use my son, Joey, who's one of my twins, who's 21, as an example. So Joey's studying engineering, and he, he likes the science of cooking more than anything else. He has basically taught me the value of watching YouTube videos. He is a master fermenter. He makes like tapate and kombucha and all different kinds of pickles from all over the world. And he just decides like, I want to learn how to make X and he watches a video and then he makes ricotta cheese. So that's a really good resource to learn about things. And I would just pick a few things that you want to focus on. You might say, okay, now is the time I'm going to learn how to make croissant from scratch or, or your own puff pastry. Like just pick something and then keep doing it over and over. When I'm writing cookbooks, I'll test a recipe six, seven times before it goes out to a recipe tester. So then you start to really improve your skill in that particular area just by trying out all the different variations. So yeah, just keep doing that. Just pick things that you're not, if you're not going to restaurants or doing a lot of takeout, you can basically say, oh, like I miss eating X at my favorite restaurant. Well, then just make it at home. I love that. I love that. And I did in one of my pastry classes, learn how to make puff pastry from scratch. And that takes forever. Oh my God. It takes me like two days to make croissant. Right? It takes forever, but it's so worth it. And it's so delicious. And my dad and I made croissants once and it was so much fun. But yeah, to your point, I, I really love that. Pick one thing and keep doing it over and over again. I can't wait till we, when we get back in the office, whatever those things were that you made that time. I know that's so vague because I don't know the names of anything. All I know is that it was a puff pastry and it was delicious. Was it um, lemon? Yes. Yeah, I made um, I made cream puffs one day, yes, it brought was them that. in, it and was I made vague. a chocolate one, and I made a lemon one just for Miriam. <laughs> so, so we're really interested to know, you touched upon this a little bit, you have been teaching classes as part of your work, and now you've had to switch everything and do them online through Zoom, Eventbrite, whatever. And you've talked about how people are clearly super invested and interested in the Instant Pot. But what else are you seeing people really are hungry for right now in your classes when people say, hey, can you come teach me? Can you get on Zoom and teach me how to do this? What are the things they're looking for? So I have taught over 125 virtual cooking classes since the pandemic began to wow. ages 12 to 85, to groups of six and groups of 600 all over the US, Israel, Canada, and Europe and beyond. It's been really extraordinary. If you had told me a year ago that me, the person who travels around the world doing in-person events that I'd be doing this, I would have laughed in your face. And for people who are just like tired of being on <laughs> Zoom, my best example is my teenage students I have now. So I started teaching summer camps in May where I had groups of teenagers do baking camps and then cooking camps with me. That morphed into after-school dinner prep classes in the fall and now this winter where people gather up their children's friends and they come to me like at the end virtually after their school day and they make an entire meal with me for their parents. Yesterday I did a super green soup with pizza with different toppings with homemade dough. Uh, the other day, we did chicken scallopini and a Vietnamese noodle soup. I've done Israeli menus. That's been really popular as well. I do many classes for Jewish organizations. 
as well as private groups. I've done multiple 60th birthday parties where I get to see screens full of smiling women celebrating their friends and cooking with me. Bat mitzvahs and just all kinds of small get-togethers people like to have. And in terms of what people like to do, a lot of people want healthy menus because we need to eat healthier since we're kind of stuck inside a bit more. But I've done so many challah and babka bakes. That's been really popular. One of the easiest and funnest things to teach virtually has been black and white cookies because the first cookie people decorate looks terrible. But by the third cookie, everybody is so excited because it looks just like a bakery cookie. So I've been doing a lot of those. I've taught crepe making where I've had 12-year-olds making crepes perfectly. I have a Sunday French pastry Zoom for teenagers. So a lot of the comfort foods that we love, I'm teaching now in the Instant Pot, but tons of baking. People want to up their baking skills. So that's been definitely keeping me busy. So what does that logistic look like? You must have a really crazy, amazing camera setup for that. So I have my laptop where I see what everybody else is doing on the gallery setup. And then I have a tripod over by my stovetop. And I try to get everybody to like watch me and I, and I'll have them show me like what they're doing. So I can say, okay, when you're putting your spatula under that crepe to flip, you're doing it too slowly. You just got to just dig it down there. Like you're digging it into the bottom of the pan and quickly flip it over. And of course, if it breaks, you get to eat it right away. Like this week, I have two classes where I'm making Napoleons. That takes some skill to do all of that via Zoom and to pay such close attention to what people are doing in a digital space. That's it's, great. It's very slow, but I, I have to say, like we made a French opera cake recently, which is a layer cake with a chocolate and coffee cream, and everybody's cakes came out well. We did a lemon tart. I know that Miriam, you like lemon dessert, so I do. I, I have a French pastry class next week doing lemon tart, so. I really kind of aim to please, but it's been really, for me, really extraordinary to see people be successful over Zoom. That's incredible. That takes a lot of skill for sure to be able to do that. Because when I hear Zoom baking class, I think of just cooking demos, right? But you're actually paying attention to people. That's incredible. And I feel like that. It requires a crazy amount of patience, both on my side and on the side of the student. My husband just hears me teaching when he walks in and out of the room. And early on, he said to me, you have way more patience with your kids than you do with your adult students. And I said, really? Because I can hear your voice is different. I said, well, I expect the adults to have some baking skills. With the kids, I assume they know nothing. So I always start from the basics. But I was watching a student peel a carrot the other day. And she was trying to peel the whole carrot at a time as opposed to doing the bottom half and turning it over. And I realized, oh, you need to really explain. And I teach students how to wash vegetables and chop vegetables and use the knife safely. And I make sure they're learning like foundational skills so that they can pick up another recipe and know when it says you're going to slice leeks, what you have to do to the leeks before you can do that. Yes, exactly. And I think that is probably what sets your classes apart from just any other Zoom class, that interactive element and creating a space where people can ask questions. I remember in one of my cooking classes, we learned all about leeks and it's this whole process. Yeah, so it's really great that you went back to that. I'm gonna Google, what do you need to do to leeks later to cook? You need to wash them. Oh, well, they're filthy. They're, they're disgusting. Filthy. So there's two ways to, there's two, two ways to wash them. So I teach my students how to wash lettuce and how to cut lettuce, how to cut things in bite-sized pieces, how to think about 
amounts of things. I did a class uh, recently with eight students, five of whom had didn't have the amounts in the recipe. It was a soup with like zucchini, you know, leeks and onions, zucchini, peas, spinach, basil, like everything green in it. And one of the kids was like, I don't have the zucchini, but I only have one zucchini. I don't have any broccoli. And I'm literally making up the recipe mid-Zoom so that everybody will have something to eat at the end. So I've been like, it's like an episode of Chopped on a regular basis because the students don't always have the ingredients. Like, what if I have no onions? I'm like, okay, what if I don't have the, the key ingredient for a recipe? And on in that moment, I'm like reimagining it on the spot. That's Awesome. That's improv. That's what you have to do. Yep. That's what I do. I do cooking improv. (laughs) And showing that to any aspiring cook is, I can sense, like very motivational and very reassuring for them and helps give them confidence because it's like, okay, I might not know what I'm doing right now, but Paula is teaching me how to improvise and find my way around the kitchen. That's incredible. It's so important because we know we'll be going through a bunch of spices for a recipe and they won't have half. I'm like, go in the spice cabinet, tell me what you got. And then they'll say, I have, I don't have time, but I have oregano and I have basil. I'm like, okay. Or I don't have any soup stock. So I have to use water. Well, what do we add to that water to make it flavorful enough? So it's soup stock. So I, and I've taught them to look at the vegetables and assess the sizes of them. And I do this for the adults as well, so that you can make, you can, I want to empower everybody to cook on their own. I'm glad that people keep coming back for more and more classes, but I want them to get to a point where they don't need me, where they can open up a recipe and they're like, oh, I've done this before, or I know how to do this, or I don't have these two ingredients, but they're a quarter of a teaspoon each. I'm just going to ignore them because Paula told me that. Yeah. And that's too how people can connect to their family recipes if they don't have something on hand. Like they can think about what you've taught them and adapt it that way. So Paula, we've shared some of our culinary stories and histories with you, and we would love to hear more about yours. So as I mentioned earlier, like everybody has their own personal food story, and mine went back to my grandmother's kitchen in Brooklyn. So about 35 years after I was like sitting in my grandmother's pink and yellow 70s kitchen, like learning as much as I can from her. She was a master baker, and I have included so many of her recipes in all of my books. So 35 years after that time, I had started doing cooking demonstrations for different organizations, you know, in person. I've been all over the U.S., large Jewish communities in L.A. I've been to Idaho and St. Louis and Louisville and tiny Toledo and smaller places as well where there's no takeout. So people really value cookbooks. So most of the classes that I booked, like people recommend me. So I got an email one day from a woman asking me if I would teach a cooking class at her rabbi's house. So I called her on the phone and I said, oh, so happy to do a cooking event for your community. Is your rabbi's house located at 3844 Lime Avenue in Brooklyn? And the woman says to me, how can you possibly know the address of our rabbi's house? So I tell her, That was my grandparents' house. And I taught a cooking class in that same kitchen, which had been tastefully redecorated with my mother, my aunt, my daughter, my dad, all there in attendance. I thought I'd be overwhelmed because grandma was gone. She lived to age 98 on a steady diet of sponge cake and sanka. And you guys are a little young to know what sanka is. And 
but I wasn't overwhelmed because when I sat down, when I stood up to, at the island to teach that class, I was holding the kosher baker in my hands. I had finally gotten that book published and I knew that's what, what I was meant to be doing. And it was an amazing, amazing experience that brought like kind of everything home to me. And I just feel so blessed that I get to continue to teach virtually and hopefully again one day in person. And, and I know like what I do, like I'm not changing the world, but I know, like I really know that I am empowering people in the kitchen and I'm bringing them joy. I'm bringing together history and memory, like one bite at a time. And if I can do that for others, then I'm just going to continue to keep writing more cookbooks and teaching more classes to inspire others, to honor their own food memories and create new ones. I love that so much. And that's one of my favorite things about Jewish cuisine. It connects us with our past, our families, and our collective history as a people. Something I just learned is that what my Egyptian grandmother calls one thing has a completely different name in Syrian cuisine. At Jewish Boston, we have done a lot of podcasts about Jewish food, from dali to challah to spices. What excites you most about our diverse Jewish cuisine? That there's no end to continuing to learn about it. One of the things that I've been trying to research a little bit is what are Jews of color eating that might be different from like traditional Syrian, Egyptian, Algerian, Moroccan family food? I'm always interested in marrying Ashkenazi and Sephardi cuisine. And I think that in our community, sometimes there's such a Ashkenazic focused. And I've always been a Sephardi wannabe because I love room temperature vegetables, room temperature salads that you can make a day or two in, in advance are way better than anything you have to make five minutes before you sit down. The flavors melt together more. So I have loved learning about so many different types of kind of Jewish cuisine. I did a Moroccan feast Zoom class for a woman and her three sisters who lived all over the US and Canada. And we had so much fun together. I had traveled to Morocco and they didn't really understand, know this cuisine. So we made a tagine and a Moroccan bread and a salad, and it was wonderful. So I like that as we're, we talked a lot about like gaining new skills in the kitchen, like diving deeper into those histories. There are so many wonderful books that kind of tell you about those different communities. So I want to continue to do that with all the great trends happening out there online. There is something, whether it's Syrian, or Moroccan, or Yemenite that I've never made before that I should learn how to make because that's part of my culture. So I always say, don't just fill your table with the cauliflower rice and the zoo, the, the noodles, the zoodles and um, the kale, like tell your food story at the table. And ours is such a rich history that they're re it's like limitless what you can come up with to serve at the table. And now that we all have more time, it's a good opportunity to dig into those different cultures in our tradition and find these wonderful recipes where people would make together in communities and sit down and eat, or that was made at a, a Moroccan wedding back in Morocco. It's a great time to kind of enhance kind of your own personal kind of culinary experience. Have you ever heard of Malachaya? No, tell me about that. 
So it's something that's really popular in Egyptian cuisine. My grandmother makes it. I don't eat chicken or turkey anymore, but it's a plant and you can use it to make soup and stuff. And I was in a lift a year or two ago and the driver and I were talking. It turns out he was from Egypt and he mentioned Malachia to me and I was like, whoa, 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 what? Because I had never heard anybody else mention Melochea before. So if you're interested in diving deeper into the more Sephardic or Mizrahi type of food, I definitely recommend Melochea. It is one of the best kept secrets, I think. That's great. One of the things I discovered in Israel is is mafrum, which is a Libyan dish. So mafrum is, there are different versions of it, but basically you're like taking a potato and you're stuffing it with a meat stuffing inside. And then you're cooking this whole thing in a spicy tomato sauce. So you end up with this moist potato, this moist meat, this wonderful sauce. I was working on an Instant Pot version of it, which I haven't published yet. I mean, it's messy. It took forever to like stuff all these potatoes. And since everybody was home to make an, I just made too many of them. But it's something I definitely want to try again. I went to a Libyan restaurant in Israel right near where my brother lives in the kind of the center of Israel and discovered all kinds of interesting food that I didn't even know about. So by the time this comes up, this book will already be out. And I encourage everybody to buy books for yourself or as gifts and challenge yourself to new recipes as well. You heard it here. It is a mitzvah to buy her books. Thank you again so much for joining us today on the Vibe of the Tribe and talking about all these amazing food ideas, your books, and more. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. And it was real. I'm always happy to talk about food. Eating it is definitely better, but it's really fun to talk about it. Thank you. Thank you to everyone out there for listening. To purchase the Instant Pot Kosher Cookbook and check out Paula's recipes and classes, visit www.thekosherbaker.com and follow at Kosher Baker on Instagram. If you liked this episode, be sure to rate and review The Vibe of the Tribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks as always to our editor, Jesse. Stay safe, wear a mask, and go bake some popcorn.